I was watching a news clip last week. There's a news clip of Joe Biden visiting Uvalde, Texas. He was going to a church service to comfort families, families of the shooting victims. And as he was walking in, the crowd was shouting at him, do something, do something. Similar cries go up to God, perhaps from families in Texas saying, when are you going to do something about the evil that is on the earth? Similar cries go up from the people of the Ukraine saying, Lord, when are you going to do something against the evil aimed at us? Maybe we've seen the moral decline in our nation and we ask, Lord, when are you going to do something? And then the saints in heaven who have been persecuted throughout the ages, put to death because of their faith in Jesus, they too cry out to God saying, when are you going to do something? When are you going to avenge us? When are you going to correct the iniquities and the evils on the earth? Now, the answer that Revelation gives us is God is going to do something. And we may not like what we read about it, but we will see that it is a just, that it is a a, a response of a just, a holy, and a merciful God. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 15. We'll read the whole chapter. And we'll begin with verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and in heaven, the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So now we're going to go back and start with verse 1 and bring some understanding to this text. It begins by saying, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them, God's wrath is completed. Now, we've already read about seven seals, and those are terrible, and there's seven trumpets, and those are terrible, and now there's seven bowls of wrath, and 
this is going to be really bad. But it's the last outpouring of God's wrath. After this, Jesus will come. And so now maybe a question arises that exists out there in evangelicalism. Is the church going to be raptured out of the earth before this time of wrath comes? Now, if you haven't heard that word rapture before, it's an idea that that Christians are taken out of the earth before the time of wrath comes. That's next week's sermon. You've got to come back for that, and we'll tackle that then. But today, we will talk about the justice of wrath. Now, verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. We read about this sea of glass in chapter 4, verse 6. The saints were gathered around it, and they were worshiping the Lord. Now there's fire in it, indicating wrath is about to come from the throne of God. And standing by the sea of glass, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. Now for the audience that this letter was written to, that might have been Nero. It could have been Domitian. They stood up under persecution, though there was great pressure on them to compromise. But they held on to their faith, and these people are in heaven. But we've talked about there being beasts in every age that has persecuted the church. Those saints are here in heaven also. In fact, everyone who dies hanging on to their faith in Jesus is here before the throne of God. In verse 3, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And these songs are similar because they praise God for his deliverance. So let's visit the, the song of Moses. It's written by Moses after the Israelites come through the Red Sea. Uh, it's led by his sister Miriam with a tambourine. Uh, the Israelites sing it. We did part of it as our call to worship. But it begins with, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. So who is singing this song? The Israelites are. When did they sing this song? They sang the song after they came through the Red Sea and after the Red Sea drowned the army of Pharaoh. And why are they praising him? Because God has saved them. He has saved them from their enemies. And this enemy was Pharaoh. And what did he do to Pharaoh's army? He drowned them. Now, I hear some people ask, well... Is that just for God to drown an entire army? Well, was it just? I mean, there were 10 plagues before that. And uh, that last plague was terrible, the taking of the firstborn. And now uh, Pharaoh's army is drowned. Now, the answer the scripture would give was yes, it was just. Pharaoh had enslaved a free people. And then he ordered a genocide. 
having every male child drowned in the Nile. The people of God called out to God to be delivered. God heard their cries and raised up a deliverer, Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, they're an economic asset. No. So then he demonstrates some signs that prove that Yahweh is God. And Pharaoh still, no. And then some plagues come on Egypt to kind of turn up the screws and turn up the heat. No, no, no. Finally, at some point, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Because even that hardening will be part of the judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt. Because God will want to demonstrate the glory of his mercy to the Israelites and the glory of his righteousness to the Egyptians. Go to verse 2. Oh, and I saw what looked like a sea of glass. I actually uh, missed my spot here. You know, I have this wrist thing, and I usually type out every word of a sermon, and I just can't type with this. So I'm like a one handed typer, and so I've typed an outline and Miss my spot. Okay, so here we go. So God delivers his people. And now there's people in heaven who sing this song of Moses and they sing a song to the Lamb. And this song goes like this. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So who's singing in heaven? The saints are. Who are they singing to? They're singing to God. And that's a clue to our worship. Whenever we sing, we sing to God. Back when the choir was here, one of our student soloists, I, I met his girlfriend one Sunday, And I asked, does he sing love songs to you? She goes, yes, he does. I thought, well, that's, that's worship, right? When you sing love songs to God, you are worshiping him. So when we worship through song, that's something to keep in mind. And why are they singing? They're actually singing this time because of what God is going to do to bring about deliverance. God is finally going to do something about evil. In fact, all of this, the the song, the wrath that will be poured out on the earth, all of it points to God's glory. The song points to God's glory. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Who will not bring glory to your name? Now, glory is kind of a a tough word to define. We can say, well, um, I'm doing this for God's glory. That means you're going to do it so that God is worshipped and God looks good. 
And sometimes we use glory for other things, like uh, you'll see a beautiful mountain landscape and you'll say, ah, that's glorious. My daughter once saw a handsome young man and said, oh, he's glorious. I remember the chiefs winning the Super Bowl and they had that parade afterwards and the people were just screaming and a million people in Kansas City giving glory to the chiefs for what they had done. John Piper writes that glory is the many faceted aspects of God's beauty and attributes. So that when God receives glory, there's some aspect of his character, some attribute of his that we are seeing. It's like a multifaceted diamond, and each time you shift that diamond, you see another ray of light, another dimension of its beauty. And so, as this wrath comes upon the earth, God is going to use it to glorify or point to his justice. Now, um, we kind of think of justice as, as, as fair and, and true. And true justice on earth really doesn't exist. If I got in trouble and needed a lawyer, I would ask, who's the best lawyer? Because if I have the best lawyer, it kind of tilts things in my favor. The judge might be an impartial man, but he can't possibly know everything. And so only God is just. But when this wrath is poured out, they will, we will see the glory of God's justice. God is holy. The song points to his holiness. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. And God burns with this white hot holiness. He's totally pure, no shadow whatsoever. It's a holy standard. And so this wrath will demonstrate the glory of God's holiness. And it will also demonstrate the glory of his righteousness. Jesus is righteous. We inherit his righteousness. Everything he did was perfectly good. That's true righteousness. And this showing of wrath will actually highlight the glory of God's mercy because some will receive what they deserve and others will receive what they don't deserve, and that is grace. I had a theology classes with R.C. Sproul when I was at RTS. And he tells a story about um, the justice of God. And he tells a story of when he was a professor and he had told the class, you have a paper due on this day and uh, I need it in on that day because I need to grade them and get the grades in. So he had a student that turned in the paper late. And he says to the student, well, you're getting a zero on that paper. And the student was angry and said, that's not fair. 
So R.C. says, do you want me to be fair with you? He says, yes. So he says, well, I said to turn on this paper, turn this paper in time. You didn't. Fair is getting what you deserve. Zero. And I think I remember you turning in a paper late a few weeks ago because you said your kid was sick and I let you turn it in a, a day late. But to be fair, I should hold to the due date. Zero. And then at the beginning of the semester, you, you asked for another uh, delay to turn in a, a paper. And I was gracious to you and I said, okay, but if I'm going to be fair and give you what you deserve, well, that should be a zero off also. So then he said to the student, so what do you want? Do you want me to give you what's fair, what you deserve? Or are you going to be grateful for my grace? This wrath, this vengeance upon the earth will be just. It will be fair. The earth will deserve it. But some, like you, will not get what you deserve. You will get grace. Now, some people will say, well, and because we're going to read next week about what these plagues are, you're going to read them and you're going to go, this is absolutely horrible. And some people might say, well, how do you reconcile that with a loving God? Well, we have a God of love, but we also have a God of truth, a God of justice, a God of holiness, a God of righteousness. If there is no wrath, if there is no judgment, then God has no regard for justice. Have you ever seen a movie where innocent people die at the beginning of the movie, and then at the end of the movie, the bad guy dies? And you think, well, that's justice, the bad guy died. Is it? Innocent people die, and a bad guy dies, and that's it? No, there has to be a judgment. People have to get what they deserve. Otherwise, there is no justice in the universe. And if there is no wrath, God has no regard for his own holiness. The righteous, pure standard of God, if there's no judgment or wrath, then it's God saying, well, I don't really care about my holiness. I'm kind of neutral about sin. No, he hates the sin that has destroyed his creation. And if there is no wrath and there is no judgment, then God has no regard for his own word. For he who said, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. To not have a judgment is for God to say, well, I didn't really mean what I said. The judgment is just. What will be poured out on the earth will be what the earth deserves. But there will be some who receive what they don't deserve. That will be grace. Now the judgment with the seven bulls will be horrible. It's horrible to read and visualize, but it is coming. And it must come before Jesus makes things right. 
Do you long for a world where there's just no more war and people live at peace? Do you long for a world where people just don't shoot others out of randomness or hatred or sickness? Do you long for a world where um, people aren't hungry and people aren't starving? Do you long for a world that is truly governed well? None of that happens until Jesus comes back and makes that happen. So what do we do in response? Well, number one, if if you haven't accepted God's offer of mercy that comes through Jesus Christ, then you say, Lord, I want mercy, not what I deserve. Secondly, we can sow the seeds of the gospel because we don't want to see anyone endure the kind of wrath that's to come. We want to bring as many as we can with the aid of the Holy Spirit under the umbrella of God's grace. And then we worship him as ones who will be spared wrath. There was a person in my former church, they're uh, driving on a major highway in California. It's, it's, uh, it's I-5. It goes through the Central Valley. And, you know, in California, they drive like 80 miles per hour, weaving in and out of traffic like this. And uh, they're on that highway, and then all of a sudden, there's these fog banks that show up in the Central Valley, and there's this fog bank, and then they drove in the fog bank, and then they heard, crash, 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 crash. And when the sounds of the crashing ended... She realized that her car was unscathed and she was unscathed. And she got out of the car and saw about 40 cars mangled in a mess. People with bleeding faces in their car, others with mangled cars and trapped inside of it. And when she saw what had happened to them and that she was unscathed, She said, all I wanted to do was get on my knees and worship God for his mercy. This is what the saints do. They worship God for his mercy and grace. 